Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, at that parsha that we read uh, often between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, depending on how the calendar falls. Uh, and so we uh, always, at this time of year, come to this reading, the second to last, the second to last parsha of the Torah. So the last parsha is Ha'azinu. Yo. The, the poem Ha'azinu is the last parsha, so we're in, we're in the final section of the Torah that is not that poem, right? So the poem is kind of tagged on. Um, so we are in the last part of Deuteronomy, uh, where we actually get, um, non-poetic text. Rabbi, Amy? Yes. I have a question, and everybody please indulge me if this is indicative of my not paying attention. <laughs> During Torah services, we was it Torah? We were reading from Genesis. Correct. Why? Because, because it's a holiday. Genesis. Every holiday has its own Torah reading. We interrupt the lectionary in order to read special parshiot for each holiday. So even though we haven't have Simha Torah to officially restart. Correct. So it has nothing to do. With where it is in the Torah, it, it is simply, not simply, but it is the readings that the rabbis chose to attach to these holidays. Okay. So now I'm going to ask, okay, why, why, why those? All right, let's talk about the binding of Isaac. Why do we read the binding of Isaac on Rosh Hashanah? Rita Ephros, come on, y'all. Why do we read the binding of Isaac on Rosh Hashanah? Put me on the spot. Um, it's, it's to emphasize the importance of faith in God. And why at Rosh Hashanah would we want to emphasize our faith in God? It's the contract. It's a contract? The contract? That would be covenantal language. Why don't we look at the covenant? Why don't we use the covenant if it's about contract? All right. Not about faith. Well, it is about faith. It's about look how good we are. Look who we are. Remember who we are. We are children. We are descendants of Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his only son for you. It's very Jewish. You're going to sit in judgment of us on Rosh Hashanah? Remember who you're talking to. You're talking to the descendants of that guy. So even if we have no merit on our own, even if we don't deserve forgiveness, even if we don't deserve to be put in the book of life, we are the descendants of that guy. So forgive us, right? We have yichus. We have connection to that guy. He's our ancestor. So forgive us for his sake. It sounds so much like part of the Christian theology, sacrificed his only son. Well, we're with this. <laughs> of course, of course, they got it. They got it from us. <laughs> but it's, I mean, they got it. I mean, of course, it comes from. I mean, anyway, if you're gonna have children and you're gonna have parents, you're gonna have, you're gonna have the stuff about sacrificing. I, you, you can't, you can't not. You can't not. Okay. So, what am I doing? Thank you, Mark. Okay, so we're so Lynn, did that answer the question? So every holiday has Thank a special you. Torah reading assigned to it, and the rabbis assign those readings very carefully. They are chosen very carefully to match, right? The the intent, the point of the holiday, <laughs> right? Yom Kippur, we read, you know, the Avoda service. We read from. Leviticus, the entire description of what happened with the high priest in the Mishkan and then in the temple. Right? I mean, so, you know, so it's, it's carefully chosen to match the, the themes of the holiday. Yes. Is that, 
So Mark is asking, does this in any way touch on something like original sin, even though we are not deserving? Forgive us anyway. Um, so no, because it's our sins. We did them. But it is like original blessing. The opposite of original sin. We have yichus. We have a boon. We have a benefit in the fact that we are connected to Avraham and Sarah. It's the opposite of original sin. We sinned. Our sins are ours. We did them. And so even if we're not worthy of forgiveness for those sins, because we're really terrible, right? We are descendants of that guy that you loved, who was willing to do anything for you. Well, the Muslims could claim the same thing. They're descendants as well. Of course, and they do. And they do, right? They, Of course, they they invoke their ancestors who were in relationship, right, with the divine as well. Absolutely. Anybody who's smart, right, is going to do that, <laughs> right? Avoda and Avoda, the same thing? Yes. Yeah, sorry, my traditional roots are showing. Um, yeah, it's just the Yiddish pronunciation, Avoda. All right. Y'all, let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? We're going to start at Deuteronomy 31. There is no triennial division because when we're only reading Vayelech, this Parsha, we read the whole Parsha because it's short. Okay? All right. I'll share a screen. Ta-ta-ta-ta. Whoa. What did I do? How do I, how do I do this? What am I forgetting to do, y'all? How do I make it so the tabs are not showing? <coughs> uh, all right, never mind. People just have to deal. All right, can you all see the text? Everybody? Okay, good. Thanks, Mehmet. All right, so Vayelech, let's start. Vayelech Moshe v'yedabert advarim ha'ele al kol Yisrael. Moshe went and spoke all these things to Israel. He said to them, I am now 120 years old. I can no longer be active. Moreover, God has said to me, you shall not go across yonder Jordan. It is indeed your God, Yudhei who will cross over before you and who will wipe out those nations from your path and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who shall cross before you as God has spoken. Adonai will do to them as was done to Sichon and Og, kings of the Amorites and to their countries when God wiped them out. God will deliver them to you and you shall deal with them in full accordance with the instruction Right, the mitzvah that I have enjoined upon you. The same thing that Moshe says to uh, Joshua. Chazak ve'amatz. Be strong and of good courage. Be not in fear or in dread of them, for it is indeed your God, Adonai, who marches with you. God will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and resolute, right? Chazak ve'amatz. For it is you who shall go with this people into the land that Adonai swore to their fathers to give them, which should be ancestors, and it is you who shall apportion it to them. It is indeed God who will go before you. God will be with you and will not fail you or forsake you. Fear not and be not dismayed. Moses wrote down etat Torah hazot, this teaching, and gave it to the priests, B'nai Levi, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of God's Covenant, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moshe instructed them as follows. Every seventh year, the year set for remission, right? So this is Shemitah, right? At Sukkot, Bechag HaSukkot, what's going to happen? When all Israel comes to appear before you, right? Because it's a pilgrimage festival. Sukkot's a pilgrimage festival. In the place that God will choose, meaning the temple, you shall read et HaTorah HaZot, this teaching, meaning, we're not sure. Probably Deuteronomy. Could just be this section. We're not sure. You shall read it aloud in the presence of Israel. Gather the people, men, women, and children, and the strangers in your communities, that they may hear and so learn to revere your God and to observe faithfully every word of this teaching. Their children, too, who have not had the experiences, shall hear and learn to revere your God as long as they live in the land that you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. God said to Moshe, the time is drawing near for you to die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tent of meeting that I may instruct him. Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. God appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud. 
the pillar of cloud having come to rest at the entrance of the tent. Yerevave said to Moses, you are soon to lie with your ancestors. This people will thereupon go astray after the alien gods in their midst in the land that they are about to enter. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I made with them. Then my anger will flare up against them and I will abandon them and hide my countenance from them. They shall be ready prey and many evils and troubles shall befall them. And they shall say on that day, surely it is because our God is not in our midst that these evils have befallen us. Yet I will keep my countenance hidden on that day because of all the evil they have done in turning to other gods. Therefore, write down this poem and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be my witness against the people of Israel. That's the poem Ha'azinu. When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey that I promised on oath to their ancestors and they eat their fill and grow fat and turn to other gods and serve them, spurning me and breaking my covenant and the many evils and troubles befall them, then this poem shall confront them as a witness since it will never be lost from the mouth of their offspring. For I know what plans they are devising even now before I bring them into the land that I promised on oath. That day Moses wrote down this poem and taught it to the Israelites And God charged Yeshua, son of Nun, be strong and resolute, for you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised them on oath, and I will be with you. When Moses had put down in writing the words of this teaching to the very end, Moses charged the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of God, saying, Take this book of teaching and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of your God and let it remain there as witness against you. Well, I know how defiant and stiff-necked you are. Even now, while I am still alive in your midst, you have been defiant towards God. How much more when I am dead? (sighs) Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officials that I may speak all these words to them and that I may call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that when I am dead, you will act wickedly and turn away from the path that I enjoined upon you. And that in time to come, misfortune will befall you for having done evil in the sight of God, whom you vexed by your deeds. Then Moses recited the words of this poem to the very end in the hearing of the whole congregation of Israel. Okay. So the words of the Deuteronomist placed in the mouth of Moshe before the people cross over into the land. Okay. So we know that this is written post-exilic, right? So what we're talking, what we have here is we've talked about this a lot, but I'll say it again. This is a, a religious revival by a school of thought saying the reason exile happened to us is because we broke the covenant because we broke the deal. So this, this is written by people who have seen the result of that. This is for them trying to come to terms with how that could happen. How could it possibly happen? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, how could it possibly happen that God's house was destroyed, that God's people were carried out? How could that possibly be? Um, and so this is this is the answer, because y'all strayed. It isn't that God isn't all-powerful, God forbid, or that their God is more powerful, God forbid. That can't be the answer. That can't be the answer that our God is not all-powerful, and it certainly can't be the answer that somebody else's God is more powerful. So if those aren't the answers, what's the answer? And the answer is because you broke the deal with God, so God, now the language of the Deuteronomist is God hid God's face. Remember before? It's very active. Remember when we look at Exodus, when we look at Numbers and other places in Torah, it's very active that God does this to Israel. In the Deuteronomist, for the Deuteronomist, God has kind of withdrawn into God's heaven. And the most we get is God hiding God's face. God is not going to intervene to prevent Israel's enemies from being victorious. And this is still how the rabbis talk about things like the Shoah, things like the Holocaust. This is the language they use, hester panim. God's hiding of God's face. Um, There's a very rich Kabbalistic literature about when God hides God's face, what what is made possible. Um, And there's beautiful liturgy written, um, don't hide your face from me. 
beautiful liturgy, beautiful poetry written about don't hide your face from me. But now you understand what that means. It doesn't mean just please care about me. It means don't do this to me. Hiding the face is this. Hiding the face is, is utter destruction. Don't do that to me. So it doesn't mean exile, right? It, you know, but, but, it's, but it's got the resonances of national catastrophe attached to it when we say, I'll toss de rainy. Like, don't, don't turn away from me. How could it be? I mean, it's similar to the American. Say, say it again. All the, all the cultures have been forgotten. The covenant has been lost with, with millions of Americans. So the covenant's been lost in terms of observance? Cultures, observance, okay. all this stuff. Yeah. If God is all-knowing and all-powerful, how could God be so personified? That's the, that's the theology of Deuteronomy, not ours. Right. That's theology from Deuteronomy, not mine. All right? So our, our theology is not that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. That is not my theology. God is not a being. God does not think. God does not act. God acts through us when we access the divine, you know, when we access those things that we associate with godliness, goodness, goodness, justice, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, transformation. When we activate those things, that is God working in the world. When we draw on godliness. And Judith likes to point out that there is a a way of understanding God as a verb. Um, So that's... Huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, but, but Deuter- that is not the Deuteronomist theology, right? So, okay. This is the last time God, God's essence of the cloud, God doesn't do that anymore. Right. So, and already it's less personified. You know, the cloud is already way less personification than we had earlier. Genesis, Exodus, parts of Numbers, right? So, um, so already the Deuteronomist has God pulling back. Right into God, much less personification, um, but we're and so we're not going to see the direct manifestation anymore. What are we going to see from now on? How's God going to show up from now on? Through who? What people? No, Mapitum, the prophets. This is where we're going to see God from now on. We're going to see God speaking through the prophets. So, how does personifying God let us off the hook? So wait, so so are you, David? Are you suggesting that personification lets us off the hook? Uh, by saying God turned away, uh-huh. saying, "Well, I'm just, I just live here. What, what do you want from me?" Um, then um, wait, wait, wait. But there's never a conversation about God turning away without us having caused it. Never. I know, I know. Never. Never. The two are connected. But what if you get a, get rid of the God did it and we did it? See, I'm just saying. Just we always did it. We did it here. We did it. We broke the covenant. We screwed up. We did it. It says it right there. Okay. So good. So good. But it's, it's, you don't have to think of God as, you don't have to get all confused about God not being all powerful because it's on you, basically. Right. Whether God is all powerful or not, right. it's always on us. I just think there's <laughs> right. I just think there's a, there's a lot of clarity for it to be all on us, and 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 sort of see God is acting through us. But it's always on us in that we've always taken the responsibility. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. The Deuteronomist, we took responsibility for the fact that we blew it. We blew the deal. God is just being God. God is being just. And God is turning away because we blew the deal. We've always taken the responsibility. For me, the question is, do you have a God who has agency or not? That's where theology can get troubling. Is because I did something, God's now going to do something else. Why is God going to, is God, God's going to rescue me or fix this? Uh, Rescue me or punish me. Either one. And and in that sense, we've now done away with that, right, as liberal Jews and said, we, we don't believe in that. But we still take responsibility for the fact that we blew the deal, <laughs> right, that we've. So how would I talk about this? I would say we put other things. We worship you've turned away and worshiped other gods, fame, power, money, vacations, fill in the blank. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. We have put those things as most important and we worship. 
We can't we worship for this. Discussion. All right, wait, 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 wait. Rita, are you trying to say something? I'm sorry. Right, wait, let me let me stop sharing so I so we can see you. Okay, no, go ahead. I was just commenting that we only heard half of that discussion because the microphone is not acting in your room there. <sighs> so we only heard your answer, but not the question. Lisa, can you go no, get Justin? Mike, can you hear me, Rita? Can you hear Dana? Rita, can you hear Dana talking? Yes, I can hear Dana, but I didn't hear the whole discussion that you just had with whoever that was. All right, so David was saying that having God be the one turning away and causing stuff lets us off the hook, right? It's God who did it. I just happened to be here. It's not my fault. And I was arguing, because that's our favorite thing to do, um, I was arguing, no, ever since the time of the Torah, we've taken responsibility, but we put the responsibility for what happens to us in response on God. But, but that we took responsibility and said, our texts say we blew it. That's all. We were just having a friendly argument. But how, how could God be, if God, if, God, if God is everything and God is, you know, the ultimate truth of the universe, all things, how could God be such a dysfunctional parent to punish, uh, to forgive upon good behavior, to punish? Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I, I, don't I get know. it. I get it. So, but, but we, have to, we have to be fair to people who that was their theology, that, that there is a God who has a very clear standard. It's not dysfunction. It is not dysfunction at all. I made a deal with y'all. I laid out the terms, you accepted. You broke the terms. You now get the consequences of breaking. See, I have a problem with that spiritually. You can totally have a problem with that. We're just trying to understand. How do you reconcile that in your practice upon, you know, this idea that God's a deal maker, right? That God's making, God's selling a car here at a lot. You know, you, you, this is my deal. You follow it or else you're going to be punished. How do you and your faith reconcile that here? I don't have to. This is their faith. Right, but you're the you're the the rabbi. I'm interested. I'm interested. This so is different. We, I don't have to defend this. Mm-hmm. I don't have to. It's not my theology. You, if you hang on, we're going to go deeper into what we do with this, right? So, but I don't have to have their theology or defend their theology. We have to have our own, right? And then we have to have a way of relating our theology in some way to these texts, or it's kind of pointless. We're looking at history. This, 100%. So this is right, this is part of the historical landscape of our theological wanderings. And so let's, let's go to the rabbis. Because once we stop with the biblical text, we go immediately to whom? To the rabbis. Alright, so y'all at home, bear with me, I gotta share screen again. Alright, so let's go to the text. Alright, let's see what the rabbis did. Alright. So, verse 1. Moshe went. Vayelech Moshe. Where'd Moshe go? We gotta get now. We're leaving the Torah. We're leaving the biblical world. We're going into the world of the rabbis. Where did Moshe go? Huh? Uh, no. Not yet. Vayelech Moshe. Moshe went. Israel. And said all these things to Israel. Where'd he go? Why is there a word by What do you mean you go to the Everybody's in the camp. Can't mean that. He can't go. The people are in their tents. Ah, okay. So see, it's not as easy as you thought. The rabbis say, where'd he go? And if you've got the word Vayelech, if you've got the word he went, then he had to go somewhere or there's no reason for that word and there's no mistakes in the Torah, God forbid. All right. So let's hear a little about where he went. And Moshe went. The great 12th century Spanish commentator Ibn Ezra explains that before Moshe died, he went to each tribe to notify them that he was about to die, but that they should not be afraid because he was leaving them with Yehoshua, who would be a reliable leader. What lesson can we learn from Moshe's behavior? If someone has fears, we should do all that we can to alleviate those fears. And it is a great act of kindness. Moshe knew their fears were without basis. He understood the painful emotion and did what he could to alleviate them. Um, and so rather than denigrate someone for their fear that to you seems meaningless and silly, because you know it's not, instead it is a great act of kindness to go to that person and, and actually deal with their fear. So to your point, 
We don't, we don't engage with just the theology of the biblical folks. We go to rabbinic commentary that then starts to pull these texts apart and moves away on some level from just the theological statements of the Deuteronomist and start moving into how do we use this in our own spiritual lives. Here's a beautiful example of that move by the rabbis. So, so we can accept that this is their theology, okay, whatever, but the rabbis too don't really want to hang out there. They want to go into how else can we understand these texts? A beautiful example of this one. Moshe, where'd he go? He went to every single tribe. Because he knew if they found out he was going to die, they would panic. And what happened the last time he went up a mountain and didn't come back for a while? What happened? Bag screwed up big time. So Moshe being the consummate leader, the compassionate visionary, who feels truly responsible for this people, knows what's going to happen if he goes up to Mount Nebo and doesn't come back. He knows what's going to happen. He knows this people. And so he goes to every single tribe, say the rabbis. That's what that word Vayelech is doing there. He goes to every single tribe to tell them, look, here's what's going to happen. But we got this guy, Joshua. He's a superstar. We, we poached him from another. And he's going to be great. Because even though they have no reason to be afraid because God is with them and Yoshua's with them, God's always been with them in what happened. They screwed up. So Moshe knows that's not good enough that God's with them. That doesn't work with these people. So he goes and he assuages, assuages their fears himself. And the rabbis say, this is a model for us. When someone is afraid, you don't deal with how rational or irrational or justified or unjustified their fear is. You go meet them in that and do what you can to take it seriously. Okay. From Rabbi Dr. Arthur Green, Moshe goes and speaks to all these words to Israel. Where did he go? Why does the verse begin with this seemingly needless and unexplained detail? Moses kept going, even at the end. Tradition describes the human being as a mahalech, a walker, as distinct from the angels who are omdim, who stand meaning they just stand in one place. What a beautiful interpretation. So we're going to look at the angels. We always think the angels are so great. No. Yeah, they're there. They don't have much choice, and they don't have anything to do. They stand there and praise God. Omdim, they stand. And what do they say all day? Kadosh, 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 Adonai Tzvaot, Molochol Haaretz Kavodo. Right? So this is what they say all the time. They just stand there and do that. The rabbis say... Okay, so that's, sure, that's lovely. But that's not a mahalich. Human beings, lich, they go. They travel, they, they, they move. Walking signifies personal growth and spiritual striving. Never being satisfied with what you've done or whom you have become until that moment. Even as he is about to announce in the next verse his inability to go in and out, right? It says, I can no longer go in and out. He was still walking. That, too, is a form of growth. So Moshe says, I can't go out and in anymore. But it just said, Moshe. It's like, he went. So obviously, he can go in and out. He's being self-deprecating and still doing the work. Like, he identifies as being too old. I'm stuck. I'm not of this generation. I don't know how y'all do. I don't know Instagram. I don't know all that stuff. I'm not the leader for y'all. I can't handle that stuff. As he's, like, texting the leaders of the tribes, right? So, which is a beautiful imagining by the rabbis of Moshe who says, I'm too old, and yet is still doing what he says he can't do, right? All right, so uh, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, Moses went and said all these things to Israel. I'm now 120 years old. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. Moreover, God has said to me, you cannot go over there right, across the Jordan. The simple reading, why does Moses have to say these things to all of Israel? Can't they see he's old and infirm? What does he gain by making this admission? What do the people gain by his admission? What might what might you gain by it as well? So 
Rami's asking the question, obviously he's old and infirm. Why does he say this out loud to the people? What does he gain? And what, what, does, what does he give them by saying this out loud? Okay, so think about that for a minute. Remez, he goes one level deeper. Why does Torah say go out and in rather than in and out, the more common usage? It is necessary. Is it necessary to go out before we come in? But then is that different than needing to be in before we can go out? Does it imply out and out imply in? And if so, right, so Rami's saying when we pay attention to the words of Torah, is there something there that the word out is first? Tell me why you say yes. Well, I think I think the word in is first, as you mentioned there too. In in normal parlance, we would say I can't go in and out anymore, but it says out and in. Well, you have to get outside of yourself and into ah. the community. And you also have to get in deeply into yourself before you have the capacity to go out. Nice. So that we have to get out of ourselves. And that, that Moshe is the paradigmatic leader that way is what I hear you saying. That he, he's out, he gets outside of himself and goes to the people. He lets his ego relax. Yes. That's one way to put it. Relax. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Right? Reb Mordechai Liner of Ishbika, the Ishbika rabbi, taught that Moses is saying that he has reached the stage of complete enlightenment. It is no longer necessary for him to go in or out or, or over there or over here. All is here and now. There is no land other than that beneath his feet. There is no in, no out, only here. The journey is set aside because the place is found. So in the Ishbika Rebbe's interpretation, Moshe is not, it's not that he can't do Instagram, and so he's not the right leader for this generation, is that he has superseded human leadership at all. It, it's a place. So the, the rabbis, the spiritual Hasidic masters, are called by their place. So Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, G-E-R, is the Gerer Rebbe. I'm the Deluter Rebbe. Was the Deluter Rebbe. <laughs> now I'm the, exactly, whatever, right? No, it's a dolphin Rebbe. Okay, so, um, so Ishbika is a place. So he's the Ishbiker. You were calling the Gerer, the Ishbiker. So the, they, are, they are called by their place. Um, so the Ishbika Rebbe interprets this to say, Moshe has reached a stage where he is beyond human leadership. That you can't be the one to lead people over there if for you, there is no there. It's all here. There is here. Here is there. We are one. Right? Like there are people, you know people like this? Who are so, like, so above, if you will, like what goes on with regular human beings that they just are no longer part of this world the same way folks who have reached incredible places of enlightenment but who can't be relied on to make a good piece of toast do, do you know what i mean like toast is it good is it bad food is nourishment and nourishment is like like you know like do, do you know people like that and so i think it's a very interesting interpretation by a hasidic master right these are spiritual masters and for me, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's a bit of an awareness that we can get to a spiritual mastery place where we no longer really have much to do with life. And that is not Jewish. That is not Jewish, which is why I think it's very interesting. So you can see it as the Ishbikar saying it's a compliment to Moshe, because God forbid we should insult Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest you know leader ever. But isn't it also a tiny bit of a... Not a critique, God forbid, that he would critique Moshe, but it's a little bit of a, okay, so Moshe got so high, so enlightened, that he got fired. Right, right, because if you're that, if you're that beyond the people, you really have no business leading the people. You have to give it to a Joshua. What is the opposite of tikkun olam? That's what you're talking about, where you're not involved in repairing you're no, well, I, I, I wouldn't call it the opposite. The opposite of tikkun olam is the breaking. The breaking happened as a cosmic event. So, I mean, it's just that it's irrelevant. Then the tikkun olam becomes irrelevant if you're perfect, if everything is fine as it is, if you're completely present to everything. There's no good. There's no bad. It just 
I just think it's an interesting interpretation by a, a spiritual master to say you can get to a point of spiritual mastery where you become irrelevant to the people. And that's not what a Hasidic master wants, God forbid. The Hasidic master wants to remain with their with their flock. And so it's like, so I think the Ishbitzer, if you read carefully, I think the Ishbitzer is saying, so be careful that you don't get so enlightened that you're irrelevant. But shouldn't he deserve peace after all he had done? Sure. All the work he had done? Shouldn't he have deserved a transcendence of ego to say, I no longer am a leader, I am I am one. I am one in my last moments of life. Absolutely, and I hope that for him. So it's less of, it's in the middle of his life that he decides to be back. It's not the middle toast. of his life. It's the very end of his it's life. It's the very end of his life. After so much service to the Jewish people. <laughs> but it's interesting, the Midrash doesn't go there. The Midrash has Moshe begging, begging to be shown the other side, begging to lead them in. So it's interesting. The, the Midrash does not go to he's enlightened and totally blissed out. They have, the Midrash has him fighting until the end yeah, he, to... He does get fired. I mean, you said that. Yeah. He does. He does get fired. Yes. So you're feeling better about Moshe now? You know, I know, I know. It's every year we go through this. Every year we have to we have to deal with my how you're feeling, how I'm about, feeling Moshe. about Moshe. So so this year, um, this year I'm feeling a little like a sense of calm inevitability. Usually, in one way or the other. And this year, maybe it's because Ellie just left for college. (laughs) But I'm feeling like this calm sense of it's just inevitable. That Moshe grows up and and right takes lead and then and then is done and and goes to UCLA so can stay close to God. So and then is just done, right? Is kind. It's the normal course of things. And I guess I guess one thing I'm comforted by, actually, in looking at this story this week, this year, is that this is, this is a restatement, just in case there was any doubt that there is no exception to the human life being following a normal course and being human, all human. And there's something very... Um, calming to me about the fact that that is the ultimate message. We never get there is the ultimate message. We never get there. We're always journeying. We never make it. There is no promise. There is no getting there. That's number one, at least on this side of things. And number two, every single human life, no matter how glorious, no matter how accomplished, no matter how enlightened, is still a human life. But it can still be wonderful. And it can be, and it is, it is wonderful. I mean, it is wonderful. Thank God. You know, uh, two things. That's maybe we'll just do one. Because <laughs> I, I was going to say something. The Deuteronomists were on the right track. And just, you know, it went on to the prophets and then the rabbis. And the who's after the rabbis? But the rabbis? No, no, I'm just saying. You know, here's what I noted. You know, in this in this Torah portion, they said be strong and resolute every time. What's that about? Because we have every reason not to be courageous. We have every reason. Turn on CNN. We have every reason to be afraid, particularly leaders, particularly people in public leadership positions have every reason to be terrified. Always have. Remember several times in Torah, Moshe's afraid they're going to kill him. He's afraid they're going to stone him. He and, he and Aaron, Moshe, uh, 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 Joshua and Caleb, Moshe at another point falls on his face, remember? Because he's afraid they're going to kill him. <laughs> Taking on leadership is terrifying. And I and I don't think it's just literal being still. I mean, I think you know, there's metaphorically, it's like you can be obliterated, right, ruined. Is somebody saying something at home? No, I'm just sneezing. Okay. Uh, all right. So, are we going on? We're going on. Right. Go on. I have a. Uh...
All right, who's that? Is that George now? Yeah, Where's I mean, George? There's George. Right Are you trying to speak to us, George? If not, we hear you. Yes, I have a question. Or a Please. Great insight. Thanks. <laughs> My basic question that I was going to ask was given that we want to re- that we have basically reinterpreted the theology in the Torah, uh, why do we, cons- given that we have basically rejected the theology in the, in the Torah, how can we use that as the basis for our Jewish life and <laughs> Yeah, but today I, I got the insight that the theology in the Torah is not relevant. What's relevant in the Torah are the values uh, and behavior that comes out of it. So I am no longer concerned with the theology and look again to the values. Hallelujah! George, it's only taken me 12 years yes. <laughs> to get you here. It took Moshe a while longer, right? Uh, George, you have just made my new year. Hallelujah. Because <laughs> it's always George who's saying, right? But, 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 George, I'm going to see if this holds. I'm, I'm not going to get too excited. I'm going to see if this holds. Yeah, write it down, people. This is the day George Walkon saw the light. Uh, okay. George, I'm so happy. George even said something about God the other day and surprised himself. <laughs> Didn't you, George? All right. So let's go to, uh, let's look at verse 9. What does verse 9 say? The stuff around verse 9 says... Moshe wrote down this Torah and gave it to the priests, the descendants of Levi, who carried the ark piece of God's covenant, and to all the elders of Israel. So Moshe wrote it down gave it to the priests, and the priests gave it to who? Zikne Israel, the elders of Israel, right, who are the leaders. And to your question, Dana, who's after the rabbis? The rabbis. And I, I'm not being smart when I say that. I, I mean it. Um, it's because for halacha, for the interpretation and the adjudication of Jewish law, it remains the rabbis. Halacha's in the in rabbinic hands. So in Israel, the right of return, all that stuff, the who... Status, you know, can you get married? Can you get divorced? All of that is in the hands of the Rabbanut. So the rabbis are still the arbiters in every community of halacha. But if we're not talking halacha, if we're talking about, you know, the ethical, you know, moral um, authorities outside of halachic Judaism, I would, I would say sometimes it's the, it's rabbis, but, but I would say it's the philosophers, right? It's your Isaac Mayer Wise. It's her. It's Heschel. It's it, right. It's, it's philosophers who took, and there a lot of them are rabbis. Like I said, a lot of them. Say about the rabbis today, though, there are women rabbis. Say, say again. There are women rabbis today. There are women rabbis. Yes, but that's different than the rabbis who came right after the prophets. So it's just not rabbis. It's. Well, but I'm including women rabbis yeah, I mean, in the term big, rabbis, yeah, right? So, has, so it, halakhically it has stayed the rabbis who are the authorities. I'm going to argue outside of, of halakhic Judaism, it is rabbis who have authority and, and slash philosophers. We really switched to the authority of who can teach ethics, values, morals, and their application. And that isn't always a rabbinic leader. To and your question. What about the development of minhag? Which, minhag. Their customs. The customs. There, there's always been minhag. And they are very powerful. Yes. So, but they're not law, but they're very powerful. Right. So, and that is always <clears throat> that is always taken very seriously. Okay. So Moshe wrote down this teaching, gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, blah 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 blah, and the elders. And Moses instructed them as follows: Every seventh year, the year set for remission at the feast of Sukkot. When all Israel comes before you, right, you shall read this teaching aloud in the presence of all Israel. Says Rabbi Arthur Green. Oh, let me stop sharing. Says Rabbi Arthur Green. This is the beginning of tradition. Moses hands over a written text 
to be passed on to the next generation. Notice that he gives it both to the priests and the elders, Dana, to your question. The priests were probably interested in all the details, getting every sacrifice right, every stricture of ritual purity and all the rest. But who were the Zikanim, the elders of all Israel at this moment? Remember, everyone over 40 except for Joshua and Caleb had died during the years of wandering. There were no physical elders in the camp. We don't think about that. They're all dead. How can he give it to the Zikanim? How can he give him to the elders? Everyone involved in that business dropped dead before the crossing. Remember? That's when Moshe, who too said, that's when Moshe was fired. Not now. Moshe was fired when he hit the rock. Remember? God says you will not live to take this people into the promised land. So he was fired a long time ago. Just retro, no, what's the opposite of retroactively? Forward actively. Huh? Thank you. He was fired prospectively. Now it's coming to pass, but he was fired then. So all those people, they were punished with what? Dying in the desert. So there are no Zikanim. There are no elders. But what about elders now? Hang on. <laughs> I got to finish Arthur Green. There were no physical elders in the camp. Therefore, elders has to mean something else here. These were people with lots of life experience, those who would know what it means to live with this teaching in the real world. They were to serve as a counterpoint to the priests, wise leaders who came from within the people. They would know how to apply the teaching to the lives of ordinary human beings. Each of us who lives with a religious tradition carries such a priest and such an elder within us. Living the life of Torah requires constant negotiation between them. By the way, this is Arthur Green not coming out of his head. I have the Hebrew, if anybody's interested in the Hebrew, but this is traditional commentary. So he's translating it for us who has have a hard time accessing the, these texts. So our, what Art Green is, is, is translating and then interpreting is, don't read, God forbid, actual elders, because there aren't any. Read instead people who were wise, people who knew how to live, people who would, knew how to, knew, would know how to take these teachings and apply them to our lives. Amcha, the opposite of the priest. Amcha, which is an insulting Yiddish uh, or Hebrew word for you know, what do you call uh, plebes, right? The plebe, the plebeians, right? You know, like the, the ordinary people, Abcha. So we're Abcha. And so the Torah was actually given to the priests who knew how to do all the ritual fancy stuff. That's terrific. You know all the tunes, Rabbi, for everything we're going to chant from the Bema. Who cares? When we come to Shu, we care. But what do we really care about? Someone who knows how to take the teachings of our tradition and help apply them to our lives, to Amcha. Someone who is strong and resolute. I love that. Um, and it's said to the people too. Chizku imku, be strong, right? It's said to the people. Because it takes a certain amount of courage, doesn't it? To honestly see if we're applying this stuff to our own lives. Doesn't that take a certain amount of courage? I don't know about y'all, but I open that machzer every Rosh Hashanah and go, oh, here we go, here we go. Every single one of them. Every single one of them. Guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Every one of them, right? It's not easy work. Opening it and saying, how am I doing? How we doing? But be strong and courageous. Because only doing that will any of this mean anything. Right? Only if you have the courage to ask how and is it applying in your life. Let's stay for a minute on the idea of inner strength because uh, I'll be 78 and uh, thank you. My life's been up and down. It goes very well right now. But a lot of times I say to myself when I'm looking around today, I say inner strength, inner strength. And I think inner strength is all about uh, it's close to faith because I really would like to have faith, really don't. But I can come close by saying inner strength. Nice. Can we stay there for a minute with others for a second? About so, so what I want to say to your thing about faith is I think in Hebrew it works a little better for some of us 
who don't have the classic idea of faith. Hebrew, the, the word faith also is ve'emunah, amen, is very close to trust. I can say, I, I too am not a person who has faith, like it's all going to be okay, God takes care of it. You know, it's not my theology. I do, though, try to cultivate being a person of emunah, of trust. That if I'm doing all this right, if I'm paying attention to all this, if I'm really doing my work, if I meditate with this group every Friday at 11.30 and soften the heart and become conscious of the right, if I'm, then I have trust that I'm doing what I can and I need to work on flexing my inner strength muscles, the muscles of attention, the muscles of control and of my temper, right? The muscles of compassion, the muscles of forgiveness. When I can work on that inner strength, that set of muscles, I'm much more able to kind of trust and turn things over to, all right, I've done my best, right? So I trust it's going to be as okay as, as I can make it right now. The way that that uh, comes out for me is you'll be able to tell the story better than I can tell because you remember the detail. But isn't there a story about the little boy who asks his father about good and evil? And uh, the father says that, you know, we have both good and evil inside of us. And uh, they're running a race. And the little boy says to the dad, well, which one will win the race? And the father said, the one that we feed. And we're saying if we feed sweetness and kindness and loving and caring. And courage. And, you know. Then that's who will become discipline. Yeah. Then, then, then I have some emuna, some trust. Faith is a little strong for me, but I, but I do trust that. Okay, I, I've done what I can do, and I trust, you know, that, that, yeah. So that's what I try to cultivate is a sense of trust rather than faith. But um, okay, uh, blah, 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 blah. do you want to say something? Sorry. I was just going to say that that's that's the path to being becoming strong and resolute. There, are, there aren't there isn't any other way to be strong and resolute except to do that to do the work. To do the work, yeah, right? Just, right. You don't become strong and resolute by just hanging back and going, "Oh, I'm sure it'll be okay." Yeah. Right? Right. If that that doesn't really cut it. I, that that doesn't really do it. Right? Um, okay. So I want to quickly address. Uh, uh, 16 and 17, 16 through 18. I don't want to spend a lot of time there because I want to get to the Velveteen Rabbi piece to give you all before you leave because too often these days I'm, we're talking so much I don't get to where I want to go. All right. So let's just, I just want to quickly look at this. So let's look at, um, 16. You will see, you're soon to lie with your ancestors. This people will go astray, right? After other gods, they'll forsake me and break the covenant. Then I'm going to get really mad. I'm going to hide my countenance from them. <clears throat> right, and I'll keep my countenance hidden because of all they've done and how they're worshiping other gods. Right, so this 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 piece right here, um, I want to look at uh, Rabbi Green uh, going to the traditional sources. What is this hiding? What does God hi- hide the divine? Fa- Why does God hide the defa- divine face from humans? Some read it as punishment. Evildoers are not worthy to be in God's presence, but it may be read in the opposite way as well, which is what we're interested in. The face of God emanates a bright, shining light. Were God to allow that light to shine on evil deeds, it would bring them out in all their horror for all to see. Those who perpetrate them would be utterly shunned and disgraced. The hiding of God's face is an act of chesed, giving them a chance to repent of their own accord. So I just love this purposeful misreading of the text by the Hasidic masters. I love that. They love us. They want to redeem this text. They want, to your point earlier, they want to redeem this God. They they have a hard time with this theology. They have a hard time with this God. They saw the Holocaust or the pogroms or fill in the blank. They have a hard time with this and matching that to their ecstatic worship of this God. So what do they do? They reconstruct it. What we've always done. They reconstruct it. But look at this beautiful reconstruction. Why does God hide God's face? Because we've seen the priestly blessing. May God cause God's face to shine upon you. God has a shining countenance. If God were to look over in that corner and see what those two are up to 
and shine God's countenance fully on that, we would all run from this room screaming. You would. <laughs> right? So, it, and it reminds me truly, any of you who have been a parent or even the parent of a four-legged creature, aren't there times where you know exactly what they've done and you choose to pretend you don't see? Because you just don't feel like dealing with the consequences that you're supposed to deliver if you see and they see that you see. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, for, I love that the rabbis completely turn this text upside down and inside out to say this is an act of love by God. That God is just going to purposefully hide God's face. Because if God didn't and shown God's light on it all, it would be so much worse. It's mercy. It's mercy. Because if, cause if God didn't love us, then God would punish us mercilessly for everything we do wrong. Right. So they, they completely misread this on purpose, which I just love about our tradition. We're just honest about it, but we've always done it. We're just honest about it. All right, let's look at this. Or perhaps the face is hidden because there are moments when Yudhei Vafay simply cannot bear to look at these creatures of God's and the way they are destroying God's world. God is heartbroken and turns God's face away because God just can't bear it. In our daily Shachri prayer, our morning prayer, we say God shines God's light upon the earth and upon those who dwell upon it in compassion. In order to be worthy of seeing God's light, we first need to dwell upon the earth in compassion. Um, and looking at uh, a different uh, set of commentaries on exactly the same verses, despair does not lead to repentance. The Parsha tells us that God predicted to Moshe that after his death, right, we were going to go astray. The simple reading would lead one to believe that this reaction of the Jewish people is a perfect response of tshuva, of regret and repentance. However, the verse then says, and I will hide my face. What is the reason for the continued hiding of God's present presence? Isn't the reaction of the Jewish people a noble and a appropriate response of contrition? I don't know what they're referring to here, but let's, I'm, I want to go on. The answer lies in a verse in Psalms. With you is the power of forgiveness in order that you, we should stand in awe of you. And so Rob Dressler says, when people despair, they have no hope and no fear. Soldiers before battle are afraid. They don't know what will face them on the battlefield. But soldiers in the midst of battle don't necessarily have fear. At that point, the situation can be desperate and hopeless. There is nothing one can do. Fear only is relevant when there is hope to escape and avoid a situation, not when a situation is inevitable. So the, the, so the Rabbi Dressler is saying, and points to the Sfat Met as well, as to say that that's why this is read at this time of year. So that we don't throw up our hands and say it's inevitable that we're going to be destroyed. Rather, that we have a response that is what? That is tshuva. That as long as we can still feel, feel awe, fear, hope, then there's a possibility for tshuva and a possibility for turning everything around. And that, that's why we read that this particular thing about Hester Panim at this time of year, so that we are motivated, right, not to say I'm worthless, it's not worth it, I'm just a sinner, I'm just a human, I'll never be really worth forgiving anyway, but, but to do the absolute opposite, to take responsibility and to, to do real tshuva. Look at your Velveteen Rabbi piece, please. And to have a Muna faith that it's there. Yes. That the possibility is there. Is that what you're saying, Mark? Exactly. Exactly. All right. Hopefully people at home can see. As our journey through the Torah scroll approaches this year's ending and concomitant new beginning, this is the Velveteen Rabbi. I've been thinking about what it means to take Torah seriously, as Moses here is saying, right? Observe it faithfully. I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean taking Torah literally, George. Because reading Torah literally and attempting to believe its many contradictory statements as factual reality would no doubt make one's head explode. It doesn't mean reading only the easy bits of Torah or the fun bits or the bits that make immediate and intuitive sense. It doesn't mean skipping over the boring or confusing parts or the parts that, parts that contradict other parts. It doesn't mean accepting anybody else's interpretation necessarily, 
But it also doesn't mean always feeling compelled to come up with your own either. It doesn't mean watching other people engage with the text while remaining at a safe distance, comfortably aloof. It doesn't mean limiting your understanding to Torah or of Torah to just the Chumash or just the Tanakh or just the written and oral Torahs or just the feminist commentaries on the Torah or just the non-feminist ones. It doesn't mean squeezing Torah into any kind of glass slippers that would require you to trim a toe here and a slice of heel there in order to fake a comfortable fit. It doesn't mean assuming, assuming that the interpretation you're longing for is necessarily right or assuming it's necessarily wrong. It doesn't mean using your version of the text to whack other people whose understandings don't match the one you prefer. It doesn't mean anything liberal or conservative, progressive or restorationist or anything else besides. It doesn't mean throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it doesn't mean keeping the baby in diapers forever either. It doesn't mean idolizing the written text in such a way that we forget the unending revelation streaming beyond and through and behind it. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Which means the only way to make Torah our lives in our to make Torah our lives is to dance with it, sometimes wildly and sometimes gently, sometimes furiously and sometimes tenderly, sometimes cradling it in our arms like a lover, and sometimes passing it around the room like a bottle of wine. It means opening ourselves to the wisdom of our ancestors and their occasional idiocy too. It means embracing the willingness to be wrong and the willingness to be right and the willingness to keep one putting one foot in front of the other step by step because that's what it's all about doing the hokey pokey and turning the scroll around turning it and turning it because everything is in it knowing all the while that what matters is how we walk the Jew, not how we walk the Jewish walk but that we care enough to walk it at all Shabbat Shuvah and Yom Kippur are on the near horizon. May we take these words of Torah into our very hearts and may they fuel us to move with serious and joyful intent through the challenges of the days that are coming. Shana Tova, Radical Torah folks, keep on walking. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org